Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Does that fit with the board okay. stuff too? How's that going to... With living in Fort Collins? Well, just, yeah, and then standing We're up live. practice. We're live, yeah. fellas. It's 10.30 a.m. on the West you Coast, 1.30 p.m. on the East Coast. If you'd like to watch this live, you go to uh, Acquirers Podcast on YouTube press the button you get a notification we do it once a week same time every week except maybe next week might be going a little bit earlier because i got a flight to catch what's up fellas we're uh joined by mike mitchell sorry everybody impact performance coming off the bench yeah and jake taylor on tour our man in st louis on tour <laughs> on the ground yeah so man on the street <laughs> we are live What's up, boys? Mike, good to have you here. I'm excited. I know it's been a minute. Not that I don't love Bill, obviously, but uh... Bill's great. Yeah, he he. I was I was flying back from a wedding in Southern California, and it was on a JetBlue flight. He said, "How can you do after hours?" And I was like, "I I doubt they want me, but if they do, then the answer is yes. I'm doing nothing today. It's a good day. (laughs) Happy to be back." I got to give a little shout out. We got India, Dublin, Ireland, Montreal, Saudi Arabia, Chapel Hill. North Carolina, Montreal. Did I say that? Crazy. It's awesome. That's the whole world. Globally. Australia, you're all locked down. You got nothing else to do. It's 3.30 a.m., but you're probably awake from the night before. So say hello. 3.30 a.m. on a Wednesday morning. Trading crypto, bro. Gotta be awake for the crypto trades. Oh, my God. Crypto never sleeps. So exhausting, I have to imagine. I, uh, what, what, what topics have you guys got for today? You, you want to riff? I've got some, I got some, I got a few things here. Um, but JT, you got some veggies? I do. I have a little segment on Wu Wei. So we're going a little Ooh. Eastern philosophy. I'm, I'm going to need your help carrying this one over the finish line, TC. I love, so. I love a little bit of Wu Wei. Yeah. How about you, Mike? I'm down. Blow it at me. Wait, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're, you're breaking up. I didn't hear you. So sorry. Yes. What was, yes. What was that? What was that? All I hear is Mike got the joke the background. In. I don't hear you. You're so, uh, I'm going to the gun range after this. So, so. I, I got a couple. Uh, I got a good one from Euclidean. John Alberg had this chart in. Uh, you see, Euclidean's a value firm, machine learning, quanty kind of. Uh, I think they're based in Seattle. Uh, they're West Coast anyway. And uh, he has this uh, relationship between inflation and value um, by decade. That's a Is pretty, it consensual? It's a pretty good fit. Well, I wouldn't be raising it if it didn't work. Yeah, it's consensual. That's okay. right. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. Inflation, is that ever consensual? I think you have that kind of thrust no. upon you. No, that's it's monetary... Uh... No, never mind. And then, uh, and then, uh, yeah, just yeah, don't don't keep going with that one. <laughs> and then uh, Chuck Royce of uh, Royce Small Cap, uh, they've they've looked at the relationship between small cap interest rates and inflation, and I'm highlighting it, so it's probably going to be good news. I won't, I don't want to give it away yet. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, let, let's let's wait a little bit. So let me see if I can summarize this. The a guy running a small cap fund. And a guy that likes value uh, are both in agreement that things are looking good for. Me. <laughs> oh, we, I, I haven't, I haven't said. You don't, we don't know what the research says yet. I'm going to okay. save that up for a little bit. Very well, uh, Mike. You got a, you got a topic. You're, you, you, you well, can riff on one of mine. You can have one. I, of mine no, I, I, I want to riff. I'm here to riff. Um, and I, you know, the stuff that I'm paying attention to, I'm not really going to talk about because. Everybody is so tired of it. I'm just not going to discuss it. But, but uh, you know, I have jobs now, so I can talk about two jobs. I have three, count my wife's practice. So we can, anything you guys want to know about starting a medical practice in Northern Colorado, I'm, I'm ready to talk about. Well, let's do a huge audience. Let's, let's well, do an okay. update on, on you. On Mike Mitchell. And then I, I also joined um, two boards, and one of them I'm on the compensation committee of. So it's been like a fascinating experience. I, I, I haven't been um, to a board to a public company board meeting since Vale in 2000 and what, 2010, I think was the last one I went to. So it's, it had been a minute and that was just as an, as an advisor. So it's kind of interesting going to 
it's Zoom, right? Because of COVID, we're not all in person. But it's, it was interesting. You know, going I'd, the I'd love to hear some of the comp, uh, your thoughts around that, because I know it's it's kind of a it's an issue. It's really, is sort of, I think it's totally underappreciated and underrepresented in the investment and business world, the incentives well, the, and how they get messed up. Yeah. The, the most shocking thing um, is that you know, as, a, as a brand new board member, I was actually asked to be on the comp committee because usually um, the two committees you really want to be on are uh, nominating and comp. I mean, those are, those are the ones that are really everybody kind of wants to talk to you and wants to you know, where your vote really starts to count. The most popular man in the room if you're in the comp committee. <laughs> I got, it turns out for the for this board, uh, for the Canadian uh, Green First Canadian Member Board, uh, that the nominating governance and comp committee is all one. So uh, my uh, my friend Kyle, who stepped down to step down from the board to make room for me to go on the board, was on the comp committee, and so there was an opening, and we were like, "Oh, Mike, do you want to join?" I'm like, "The answer is 100 percent yes." It was funny because I was we were discussing uh, in the board meeting this you know, fees for this transaction they just did and it's all disclosed as one number so you know, it's all public what's out there what the fee was so we were talking about it and you know it's wild when you own there's there comes a switch mentally where you own so much of a company like so much percentage-wise of the company and I think my my current stake is like four and change percent so whenever they're like oh the fee for legal was this yeah you're calculating for- it <laughs> Banking. I'm like, it's out of my pocket. Yeah. And I'm like, that's a six figure check from the Mitchell family. You know, I'm like, yeah, I actually really (laughs) care about that. You know, sorry. I'm like, yeah, I actually really, I have, I have some thoughts, you know? So it's, it's really an interesting dynamic. And on the comp stuff, what's so interesting about it for Green First is Green First is a brand new company. It it did not exist really um, a year ago. And so, and there was a chance it was just going to be a single uh, mill operation in Ontario, and now it's seven. So it's it's actually the third largest lumber producer in, in Eastern Canada. It's one of the top ten in Canada. So it's a it's a very real company now. So what that means is we have you know, fifteen hundred employees, and we've got a real board and a real CEO. And and what's so neat and fun about it for me is that the company didn't exist. So we're doing this all from scratch. I mean, there there was no there is no board fees. Like my comp as of today is zero, which is a very large shareholder. As a compensation structure, I can totally get behind. I thought you were taking. Uh, how do you feel in, about it in, as a director? In board, yeah. in board feet. Taking, taking the lumber delivery. Um, so, and, and depending on the day, that's either a very good or a very bad decision. But as a, it, but realistically, I mean, you you have to pay directors only because I mean I've already spent you know the amount of hours I've already spent on this. I since becoming a director, which is a couple of weeks old, I've probably spent twenty hours on this, and you're like. That's fine because I'm a huge shareholder, but you really want, if you want good, talented, thoughtful people, um, you know, paying them $0 and then hoping they go buy 5 million shares of stock is, is not going to happen, right? So you have to pay them something. But I think the, what struck me, so having sat on as an advisor on two boards on Applebee's and Zales going into this, um, Green First was, that board meeting was one of the best I've been to. I mean, it really... And I, I think the dynamic is, um, you know, I just, I left so energized. I think one of the, the dynamic is that it's, if you go into a, an existing board that's been around for 30 years or 40 years or however long, everybody's got their own little agenda, right? And they've got their own little, you know, I'm used to making $125,000 a year. And this is, and I'm used to coming to a meeting and having a lunch and I've got my friends and it's like, it, it becomes this like little fiefdom you know, dynamic where you have to sort of cleverly go in and sort of break up these you know, little regimes and try to get new ideas brought in. Well, Green First, it's never existed. It's like a startup. So uh, you're, you're really starting from scratch. So you can kind of do anything you want. So the chairman of the comp committee sends us, says, well, what do you think about this? And it's like, well, I like that. And then I you know, see another company that does it this way. And what do you think about this? And so, and there's, there isn't really a, a set agenda that anybody has. I mean, everybody's just sort of but the, the words that I like to hear, so and it, it's always, and I heard it a lot, which made me very happy is, well, what's the most shareholder friendly thing to do? What's the way to create the best alignment? What's the, so I'm just like, you know, I'm aligned. I want you to be aligned. And I, and I think we'll get there. I, I feel good about it. So that's what's going on with me. It's, it's actually a lot of work, but I'm, when I got asked to do it, I was like, you know, holy shit. Yes, of course I'll do it. I'd love to. Um, it's been fun and hopefully it'll keep you in fun. Would you uh, look at what Berkshire does as a as a model for some of those things? Do you have DNO? 
Yeah, so we do, uh, we, we do and we will have DNO. I would say it this way, um, if we didn't, I wouldn't join candidly because, you know, like they're, so number one, Berkshire is an insurance company. So, you know, they have the ability to self-insure. Um, you know, it's just for me, like, there's so many things that happen. I mean, we were on a sale board and there's another micro cap company I'm thinking of that's kind of well-known on, on Twitter that won't mention the name, but it's had some restatement issues. And, you know, there's just so much shit that can happen that like you do everything right and you try really, really hard. And then something just, somebody just does something bad. And Warren talks about that. He says somewhere in Berkshire, there's too many people. Somebody's doing something wrong. Well, if you're Berkshire and you have essentially unlimited funding, I'm not hundred percent sure it makes sense to go out to get, and go out and get DNO. But for me and my family, like I definitely want DNO because if somebody does something really crazy and as hard as we work, we don't catch it. Like that liability, it's just not worth it to my family to take it. So my personal think, view, other people could disagree with me. If somebody wants to go on a board and not have DNO insurance, God bless you. Uh, but uh, that's not Buff- me. Buffett's passed before on a business or several businesses that, uh, because of the potential liability of them, even though it was a reasonable business. So one was like a security thing. Um, yeah. and he, he actually said like, whoever owns this business should have a net worth of, in like the two figures yeah. because there's just yeah. too much downside liability for you. That's it. And that's, you have to think, honestly, you kind of have to think that way of like, listen, I'm really excited and I'd love to do it, but uh, it'd be a great education and I'd love to help shape the future. But if, if my family is going to lose hundred percent of everything, not just hundred percent of the investment, which would be bad enough, you know, if it didn't work out, uh, but losing my house doesn't seem like a pretty good, uh, a pretty good outcome for me. So I take a, I take a strong pass. The Buffett's, the, the Berkshire stuff, I think we all, myself included, hold it up as the model for how people should be incentivized, how boards should think about it. The number one thing for me is I don't think I, I agree wholeheartedly with the sentiment that nobody should be on a board if they are if they need the board fee to live. Meaning when I approach compensation and call it independent. Correct. Yeah, correct. If I if I'm unhappy with the way that my board seats are, you know, if I'm unhappy with the direction of the board, it's not a problem. I have a full-time job. It's just thank you very much. I enjoy you guys. I'll still be a shareholder, but I'll do it from the outside. I have the ability to walk away from it. I don't think anybody should be a board member if they don't have the ability to walk away from it because you become exactly to your words, you're technically independent, but you're not. You're not focused on shareholders. You're focused on keeping your job. Luckily, we don't have that issue uh, with either of the two boards that I'm on. So my thought is, you know, as little cash as possible, as much stock as possible. And I think that creates more of an alignment. I think, you know, if people need cash, then, you know, getting a job as opposed to being on a board makes a lot more sense. And I'm, I'm fortunate that I just, you know, we got a spouse that supports me and I'm basically a bum. So I don't need the cash. But I think that's Berkshire saying, you know, Warren saying I take very little salary and the, the board members getting paid very little and not having DNO. I think that's like the benchmark ideal scenario. It's not realistic for 99.99999% of companies, but yes, if if Warren called and said, would you be on the Berkshire Hathaway board for no DNO uh, and $5,000 a copy a year? The answer is 100% I would do that to be on the Berkshire board. That's the that's a one of one. You know, there's not another example of that. So there's a reason why McDonald's pays, you know, whatever, $300,000 a year per board member. I just made that number up. It could be 200. I know it's not 100, but you know, there's a reason why they all pay and have DNO. So they want to get good people and you know, Berkshire's a one-on-one. So it's not a perfect example for everybody. It's the standard. I would love it for, but fortunately, Berkshire hasn't called me yet. So. You also have the issue that you might be completely in the right and you might ultimately prevail, but it's extremely expensive to defend yourself. And that's really what DNO is for. It's what are you trying to figure out where the wrongdoing lies and yeah, you can right. defend yourself with that. That's what it's being paid for. And then, you know, if it turns out that you were grossly negligent or negligent or whatever the standard is, I don't know. Yeah, and, that's you know, right then you're probably appropriately gone, but it's that period in between where you've got to pay the lawyers and figure it out. That's, that's really what it's for. Yeah, that's, that's very well said. I mean, it, it is a, I, I wonder, do you guys know of any other public company that does not intentionally does not have DNO, including companies above it's invested in other than Tesla? Just, just a few Tesla. little chop shops. <laughs> and I'm, I'm saying Tesla? that, <laughs> I'm saying that they don't have DNO because they can get DNO but choose not to. I'm not saying oh, that they can't. Okay. Do it. That might They're not be insurable. That's not. It's self-insured. 
yeah, I think the I think the idea is that you have to pay these people something, and uh, and I'm totally on board with that because I want good people uh, watching after my investment. But I do think that the um, the key for me is just making sure they're aligned. Like you just don't want a scenario where they're going to do well regardless, you know, of what happens. You know, you want them. You know, I have this the Malone philosophy of compensation. It's probably more relevant to me than the Berkshire uh, theory of compensation. What's so, the Malone theory? So John's idea is that you set these really high standards for stock prices and for results, but when they hit them, if they hit them, you pay the shit out of them. You just dump cash on them. So um, probably recent example, Charter, Tom Rutledge's options package. It was, I remember the stock was like 200 and I, I think I'm going to be roughly right. I may not be exactly right on this, but John, uh, John's uh, comp package, and this was through Greg Mafabian on the comp committee for Tom Rutledge was like a five different level strike options plan over like 10 years. If the stock got above 580, 590, something like that, the guy was staying to make like half a billion dollars. And it was going to be insane. But, you know, Greg's point to him was, look, if you can take the stock up 2X, like 3X, you know, I deserve to pay you. And he did. Pay the man his money. Everybody got rich. Yeah, everybody got rich. Tom more so. So that's, that's, John is okay with his guys doing better than everybody else. I would also say, like, we don't know what a lot of the executives in Berkshire Hathaway make. It's just not disclosed. I a bet lot you, of some of them. I bet you some of those guys are making, you know, nine figures. That wouldn't surprise me. So it's like, but, you know, I bet you if Warren were here, he'd say that's true and they're totally worth it. You know, I should pay him more. Um, that's my view too, is that you, know, you just set these targets, like, for each of the businesses, they have a plan, something they want to accomplish. It's a multi-year plan. My view is if they can do it, um, you know, we'll all make a lot of money. So I don't mind paying them really well if they do it. If they don't do it, then you know that's a different story. But if they do do it, I'm happy to pay them a lot of money. I mean, that, that's in my mind, that's a good outcome for everybody. Let's um, let's segue a little bit. Uh, my lumber year on year is that is that up? Forgetting a little squirt in between. I did not use that word. I want to be very clear. I did not use that word. I didn't use it in the pregame talk we had. I didn't use it here. I'm happy to go into it, but I did not bring it up. I just no, I'm bringing it up because it's it, it, go, it goes into my. It go, I just I just want to, uh, uh, you know, I think it's, it's sort of more of a conversation about inflation. Like, what's what's everybody's feeling on inflation? Are you are we seeing it as a is it transitory i'm sort of i'm, I'm interested because the more articles that i see now john authors at bloomberg has been on it pretty consistently um i think everybody who's in a position that doesn't want to see inflation doesn't see it and everybody who wants to see it sees it so i i'm sort of a little bit confused i'm objectively trying to figure it out just interested to know what everybody else thinks can i uh can i climb on my soapbox a little bit for this one please please, please do okay well I'm, this is against my better judgment, but I was I was just listening on my walk this morning, uh, listening to the Berkshire meeting as I do religiously now these days. And in 2015, someone asked about inflation, and Munger said, yeah, like they asked about the the businesses, like which ones would be affected and which ones wouldn't. And you know, Buffett talks about the co- companies that do not require new capital at higher and higher prices tend to do better than ones that require continuous reinvestment in which to generate income. And uh, of course, that makes perfect sense. And, and then Munger said, it, when it gets really high, it's, it starts to become very difficult to figure out who is going to get impacted more than others. Uh, and then he said um, that, he, he says, like, one thing that people forget is that really high in inflation in Weimar Republic, plus a Great Depression led to Hitler. And he said, and, and we paid a terrible price for that, obviously, like World War II. Um, and I, like, I, I'm kind of fundamentally bothered by the idea that, and especially as a father of two young boys who may or may not have to pay some eventual price for this, um, I, our monetary policies, I, in my view, are largely 
taking short-term gain and for longer-term pain and kicking the can down the road and kind of hoping it will be someone else's problem. And, and frankly, I find them to be a little bit spineless, if I'm being honest. And the fact that that throws more ping pong balls into the hopper, in, in my opinion, of some potential runaway, maybe inflation or I mean, I, we're certainly like playing with fire, I think, in some ways. And if that then is what would create the dynamics that would lead to a world war, you know, type of situation, like, God, just because we couldn't just like take a little bit of our medicine today and it was politically expedient to just keep kicking down the can down the road, like shame on you for that. Like be a leader and step up and and take some responsibility for where we are. And um, anyway, I'm going to end my rant there, but. That's that's been it was bothering me this morning after listening to that. Said something I disagree with. You, you were talking about politicians and then you used the word responsibility, and I'm just not sure you lost me. I was totally yeah. <laughs> was it breaking up? Yeah, you're breaking up. Sorry, you're breaking up. Zoom is very inconsistent. It's funny. I, I don't. I mean, this is I, Tobias probably has a better take on this than I do. Um, I, I don't disagree with anything that you said, and I, don't, I certainly don't disagree with um, Charlie's take on it. For me, I have trouble figuring out how much of an increase in assets, so we, and, and in, in goods, uh, how much of the price increase was due to uh, fiscal sim- stimulus, so checks, money hitting everybody's bank account, and then also you know, savings accounts and savings rates increasing because people didn't pay rent and forbearance and these kinds of things. So how much impact that had versus how much impact when you gave those people money and they didn't go back to work. And so it creates these supply chain issues that we're now feeling like, so how much of it is supply driven and how much of it is demand driven? And I'm having a lot of trouble sort of parsing that out. And I think it's twofold, one, because I'm not an expert and two, because I'm just generally not a smart person. So I can't really figure out exactly what is what. It's unknowable though, really. Yeah, well, I think the, 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 it, this will be knowable in hindsight, right? So we'll, we're, you know, 12 months from now, 24 months from now, it's going to be a really interesting conversation to look back and say, well, if the supply stuff starts to look better, that sh- if it's a supply-driven problem, then that should lead to lower prices. And so there's, you're starting to see this interesting narrative shift. I'm seeing it on Twitter. Twitter's amazing for narrative changes. I mean, you can almost like feel it when it happens, you know? And so there's a narrative shift happening about that's discussing deflation as the main story in 2022. If it's a supply driven issue, then that would make some sense to me when supply chains start to ease, the more supply comes online. The, the question is too, for me, and, and I pay a lot of attention to housing, if you think that supply chain problems are you know, the main impediment for driving home prices higher, I think it's a combo of demand and supply. So when you relieve the supply, I think it might put a cap on pricing. But if I'm right about demand, then I think, you know, it may be inflationary anyway. So I have trouble parsing that out. I think we'll know the answer soon enough. Um, I sure hope it is more supply than demand driven. Like my hope is, is that supply, when it comes back online, can really rate, you know, increase to meet that demand. If not, I think we may be in a, a little bit of a pinch because the, the one thing I see that really just gives me heartburn is interest rates. And that's the one interest rates being low is, is supporting a lot of what's going on. And if, if interest rates really have a material increase, then I'm, I'm not, I couldn't tell you if that's going to happen or not. But They've been running the, up a little bit, I've noticed, yeah, because I watched the 10-year pretty closely. It's been, it's- Where is it, like one six now? Six and yeah, a little bit over, yeah. It's, yeah. it's but that's that's right. That's about where it is. Uh, and I've yeah. seen some, like, I forget which big bank it was, but I watched the uh, Bloomberg clips on YouTube late at night and a few of them were, uh, a few weeks ago, Guy said, like, structurally, we think it should be at 1.5. We think it should be two by the end of the year. I don't know, you know, what their track record is or how likely or what they're basing any of that on. And I have heard before that two is like a magic number where above that. But then yeah, it's sort of the, the Fed has control of it. It's a slight, I, I just, my, my, my question is, when they say deflation, what are they talking about? Like they're talking about the stock market falling over, right? Or, uh, or house prices falling over. Are they talking about like a slight decrease in the price of goods? Because wouldn't that be a good thing? Doesn't that happen with the TV and computers and cars and all that sort of stuff? Like your car gets better. Your t- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, a little bit. Like the inflation, when everybody talks about inflation, what they mean is when I go to the supermarket and I go to buy stuff, it's more expensive than it was last time or it's smaller than it was right. last right. time. It's got a little yeah. dimple in it now where 
it used to be x and now it's 0.9 times x yeah because there's a little dimple in the bottom where they're hiding how much they're actually giving you and then there's this argument that comes in oh what we really should be worried about is deflation and then what they're talking about there is like the stock market going down it's they're two different things and i it frustrates me a little bit that the conversation is like that. I think the thing that drives inflation, higher consumer prices, however it runs, is the Fed just printing way too much money. And they've just been going absolutely gangbusters globally, every central bank racing to see how much they can pump out there before everybody wakes up. Because when everybody wakes up, then it's 1970s style stagflation. Hyperinflation, I think, is more of a political phenomenon where they're there's something else going on. You know, Weimar Germany is probably a stretch, I hope. I think the, the real issue is going to be a 70s style stagflation. And then you pair that with like an energy crunch because the world has transitioned too quickly to renewables. And, you know, we haven't spent enough time reinvesting in energy. That's the thing that worries me. But as a value guy, it might be okay for me. But Did for humanity, it might be can we just all hold hands and decide to buy crypto? Is that what just happened on this uh, value? Oh, the crypto guys make a very compelling argument. I got to say, <laughs> we'll sort of play it out. And, and they've seemed the, to be pretty right so far. Yeah, I mean it, that narrative just continues to push higher, doesn't it? I saw Bitcoin broke sixty thousand, so it's like everybody's um, talking about trades working, not working. That one just seems to keep plugging away. I don't know the answer to that question. I, I, you know, if I knew the answer to that question, I'd be a lot wealthier than I am today. I don't know. I think what what I'm seeing people discuss is deflation in commodities, so energy deflation. Um, That's a good so thing, you, surely. Sure, yeah. No, I, I don't necessarily think it's bad. I think <laughs> unless you're long lumber. Yeah. Well, you know, lumber actually has some some very unique dynamics to it. It's it's not a it is a global commodity, but it's also expensive to move around. So it, it ends up being for the most Localized. part a reasonably local market. Yeah. So it really is about the supply and demand dynamics in North America. Um, it has a similar, you know, there's a similar question. Is it going to be driven by supply? Is the price going to be driven by supply? Or is the price going to be driven by demand? And that has a two very different outcomes. So you, you, as somebody who's long the commodity, I would much rather the price be driven by demand than by supply. I think either way I'll be okay, but the, the really good outcome is if it's a demand-driven uh, pricing dynamic, not a supply-driven pricing dynamic. So. Why do you think it took – so there's been this underinvestment in housing, um, but why is everybody just woken up now? Like, why, why does that what, – what, what is the catalyst for that, uh, and why wasn't it sort of more of a gradual thing? Like, why are, why are house prices up 20% year over year? Well, there's two there's two theories. Um, there's, a, there's a bull case demand, structural demand theory, which is mine. And then there's a pull forward one-time bump demand theory, which is what Zellman is the who's very good, by the way. That's their they're the the best I can figure the the one bear on housing. And they're they're basically making the point that um, trends had been moving a very specific way for 10 years. And that when COVID happened, the trend changed. And their their point is it's a one-time change driven by COVID, and we're going right back to the prior trend. Um, my view is that if you look uh, for every every generation going back for 40 years, there is a decelerating trend in household formation. There is a decelerating trend in fertility. My son has some very strong views about <laughs> yeah. fertility and household That sounded formation. bearish to me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Disagrees. Well, he, he takes the other side of everything I do, and so far he's looking pretty smart. Yeah, that but yeah, so there's there's this question is, well, ten year, the last 10 years since the financial crisis, the housing crisis, those rates have been like dramatic. And then the one thing that had been kind of saving us was immigration, but with Trump in 2016, immigration just went, and then you know, with COVID immigration, it's just been in the crapper. So our population growth as a country has not been all that strong. So the bear case is that we're gonna, that we had this one-time pop for people exiting cities and a lot of people buying second homes, because now with COVID, it's like, well, I want a guaranteed spot for me to vacation. I don't know what the availability is, so I'm just gonna go buy it. So there's a lot of second home buying and then a lot of exits from cities that happens one time and then the world normalizes and we get right back on that trend. So what Zellman's point is, is like builders are going to go chase it. They're going to overbuild over the next two or three years. Um, and then we're going to find ourselves back into a housing glut situation which we, we haven't had. It's a spicy take because um, it, if you go back even anything more than 10 years, anything more than the last decade, it you see a, a, a completely opposing picture. So which is where 
you know, where my head is. And then I sprinkle in some other little fun things around it to, to make it seem like it really could be quite phenomenal. But isn't it? It's, it's very interesting because we had this. Didn't we talk about this last week, Toby, where if you parse out the data of investing returns as well, it was like you had like pre 2010 to, to 2020 where it looked t- so different than what 2010 to 2020. And like, dip- like which lesson do you want to learn? Like wh- as, as far as what works, right? Like there's so much, like the weird, the world got weird in 2010 forward. Yeah, yeah I think that's right. Got pretty weird. No eight, no nine too. That was not a fun time. Um, but yeah, so that the, the, uh, the bull case for housing demand. So the other side of that is that, um, you have a demographic shift where if you look at uh, population by age cohort, the bulk of our population right now is 25 to 34. The average millennial is hitting 30 years of age. So if you think in every generation prior, what happens when you turn 30? You know, you get married, you have a kid, you buy a house. Freak out. Yeah. <laughs> you, get a, you get a minivan, like that sweet, sweet minivan that I've it's got right now. It's the Cadillac minivans right now. It is the Cadillac, but it's every bell and whistle you could possibly get. Uh, so you, what happens is that people, you know, get married and they get a house and have kids. So that normally what I would have expected to see for at least the next four years is this migration to single family causing increased demand. And all the while we haven't really been building, which nobody disputes that we haven't been building. That's just a number so that you're going to have a lot of people show up to build house to buy houses and people are staying in place longer. So as people age, they're not going to senior centers as much anymore. So there's not nearly as much inventory for these people to sort of absorb. And then sprinkle on top of that, um, this work from home dynamic, it's really fascinating to me. And I have a very strong view. We're gonna see if I'm right or not. But my view is, is that once you give, it's Munger always told the story that he's like, I discovered this psychological tendency with my dog. You know, I had the sweetest dog in the world dog was great, gentle, no problems. But if you gave that dog a bone or a piece of meat, and then you tried to take it back, the dog turned vicious really, really fast. My view is with work from home, once you give it to people, and now that it's sort of ingrained in everybody, because we've been doing it for 18 months, it is really hard to take back. And, and the, the points of the evidence I have that it, it might never come back, at least to where it used to be, is you've seen some really old states like old school companies all state pwc announcing that they're like letting tens of thousands of employees have a permanent work from home or hybrid structure amazon just said they're going to do that uh, i believe apple's doing it facebook but it's happening to like you know non-tech businesses it's happening in insurance it's happening in you know auditors so i'm looking at that i'm thinking well so what does it mean if i can work from home even three days a week well, I don't have to live in San Francisco anymore. I can live, hell, you, I think you could even live in like Davis or you could live in Sacramento, work three days a week in the office or two days a week in the office. It's a heck of a commute. But if you only had to go two times a week, why don't you pay half for real estate? So if that dynamic persists, what I think will happen is it won't necessarily create a new household, but it will create the need for a new housing as people decide to sprawl. It just gets cheaper cost of living, better schools, lower taxes, lots of reasons for people to move. I think you're going to create structurally demand for new housing units over the next few years as people decide they can just live anywhere. So I remember- It sounds like a lot of demand for energy then to facilitate that kind of sprawling. Self-driving cars, work from home, uh, flying cars. Sounds great. What do you think about this statement- uh, what if the demand for all that housing is sitting in Harvard's endowment right now? Like well, student loan, basically like crushing. I, I, thought you, I thought you were going to go in a different direction. And I was uh, going to, I was going to push, I was going to actually even push on that a little bit farther. But let's go down the student lending path. It, there is a scenario where even though balance sheets look pretty good, that 25 um, year olds to 30 year olds decide, look, I can't afford to buy a house because I've got to repay my student loans. That's part of the Zellman case of like, I'm not sure for 10 years, people didn't get aggressive when their 20s buying homes, right? And my thinking is that now that they're hitting their 30s, I mean, I tried to raise a kid in an apartment in New York City. It was really unpleasant. I was very happy when we had our second child to move out. My theory is everybody else is going to think the same way. So, you know, I'm projecting. So we'll see if that's a, if that ends up being true or not. It could be totally wrong. Zellman's point is, is that they'll go right back into that, like, 
you know, I've got too much debt. I'm just going to rent and I'm going to stay in multifamily. And so they're not going to need a new single family housing unit. Uh, and so, and that could be right. I mean, that, that absolutely could be the case where people just feel like they're too levered. My thinking is, so it's, it's an interesting dynamic is that the millennials saw the housing crisis and it was the first time, at least in, in my life, and I think in the history that I studied, where housing really took a digger. Like it was believed up to that point that if you bought a house, it was almost impossible to lose money. It right? was not true though, right? It wasn't true. No, like that was It the, wasn't the, true. It was just the, a belief. That was the belief, yeah. It's just like everybody believes in stocks. It's impossible to lose money. And of course we know that's not true, but it's-, it's It hasn't been true for a long time. time. You're breaking <laughs> up. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you're breaking up. I can't hear it. What was that? What about, what about the- There's a good comment here from Mike Bartlett in the, in the comments. Fed purchased a total- $580 billion in mortgage-backed securities during March, April 2020, and has since averaged $114 billion per month. Uh, that's got to have some impact, right? Sure. It keeps rates really low, right? I mean, that's the idea. I mean, that's why you can go get a 15-year 15, 15 mortgage right now for 2.15. I can get a 30-year for 3.2. I mean, that's that's happening because the government's letting it happen. It's not happening because the banks really want to lose money that cheaply. That's, a big, that's why I say... The risk in my mind is interest rates spike and it becomes less affordable. It's actually very affordable to buy a home now. I have studies off the top of my head, but if you go look at any inflation-adjusted mortgage payment, because interest rates are so low, even with prices so high, it's actually very affordable to buy a house. I think it's more affordable to buy a house than it is to rent. And that's part of I think of the deposit's the, the issue, right? The, the deposit's the issue because the, yeah, the deposit goes up with the house price. Yeah, that's right. That's right. There was a funny, uh, somebody tweeted something you, funny. It's been, I've been saving up for a 20% down payment for 10 years. And meanwhile, the, the price never caught tripled. up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I also think that creates a dynamic too, where, you know, as the price goes up there, if it happens really quickly for anything, a house, a commodity, people get a shock, right? And they're like, whoa. And then if it comes down at all, it's like, okay, now it's like reasonable, even if it's more expensive than it ever was. And the one I'm, I'm thinking of a very specific commodity right now that I've had a lot of attention to. They all look that way. That's, it's yeah. not unique. And, to one, but and now everybody's like, oh, it's cheap. And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's the current price is 10% above the prior peak before COVID. And that, that used to be considered like, holy hell, why would anybody ever pay that price? And now everybody's like, yeah, that price makes sense. And I'm like, that's what I want to hear. You know, Total recency bias. New, but it's also, I think, extends to housing for millennials. It's like you see you know, the people who bought homes. I bought my home in Colorado in 2018. And I remember thinking like, I'm probably overpaying for it. I think I did overpay, but it was a house hadn't traded in 50 years. It was a one of one. My wife and I were like, you know what? This is our forever home. We'll just do it. And now that's looking like, like we got the steal of the century. And my sense is that if I'm right about demand and we just can't structurally build the homes fast enough, the people who are buying homes are going to look pretty smart two or three years from now too. So, you know, I think that'll, I think that perception, I do think in the United States, people want to own homes. I, it's a fundamental belief of mine. And I think it's been different for 10 years because millennials watch the housing crisis. But I also think if you just, I think it's just a fundamental thing to us. I think we all kind of want to own. It's interesting if you talk to immigrants that come from places where people mostly don't own their uh, own their homes, everybody's like, this is like a cool feature of the United States where it's just expected that you will. So my guess is it'll, it'll, I, I'm, I fade the Zellman thing, but I would say, and I would, if I didn't say this strongly enough before, she's really good and I'm kind of a dope. So we'll see, we'll see, we'll see if my, if my, uh, my fade of the Zellman report ends up being right or wrong. But that's One of the point. interesting things about the work from home phenomenon, which we've talked about before, JT had this chart that he tweeted out earlier today, which basically there's much, many fewer people working from home, even at the peak of the pandemic, whenever the peak was March, 2020, or whenever most people were working from home, that there were, I think the absolute peak was like 40% or something like that. And then currently it's about 12 or 13%. Those numbers might be right. That's just off the top, might be wrong. That's off the top of my head. But JT had this percent teleworking because of the pandemic by occupation and month. And really it was mostly the, 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 the biggest area is secondary school teachers, elementary and middle school teachers, post-secondary teachers. This is by order of uh, working from home at the peak of the pandemic. Percentage who are working from home. Of the profession, yes. Proportion of the profession. And then uh, software developers, lawyers, education administrators, teaching assistants. So it sounded to me like it was mostly, there was a lot of teaching in there, but um, a lot of, most of the rest of the folks were were in the office. What's the impact on, if it does in fact turn out this way what's the um what's the impact on real estate prices commercial real estate 
Well, yeah, it's a, again, this is a guess. It's, it's, there's a, and I have a guess, but it's just a guess. There's a, somebody said this the other day and it's exactly right. It's a, it's a better, smarter way of saying something that I've been thinking and saying for a while, which is 20, 2019 is not the right baseline. 2020 is also not the right baseline for what the next 10 years are going to look like. I have no idea what the right baseline is, but I know <laughs> it's, it's neither those. one of those two. <laughs> so, so we are, you know, it's just like I was saying with the board engagement, creating comp plan, like we're starting from scratch a little bit here. Like we're all kind of making guesses about what we think, but the world in my mind is definitely going to be different. It's just a question of to what degree, what's going to be different and to what degree is it going to be different? And so it's a little bit of a guess. I wonder on that study, is it, what I'm more referencing in the housing stuff is a hybrid work from home. So if, if I, if that's just a pure telework, then yeah, I, I agree. Pure telework. I'm, I struggle with, because even for me, I'm like, I, I'm happy to do these meetings, uh, board calls and things uh, virtually, but like there's a board meeting, it's actually an annual meeting coming up on December 6th. If you're in the North Carolina area, come to Charlotte, uh, 5 p.m. on December 6th. We're going to have a, I think it's 5 it's gonna Is it the 5 shareholder meeting or the board meeting? Yeah, shareholder meeting. I think uh, I think we're going to do it in a, in a in a fun venue. I will I will be there in person. Chuck E. Cheese. Down. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> As it Fun venue is Chick-fil-A, just so everybody knows all the, all the nuggets you can eat on me. Um, so anyway, so like, like five, you're 5% of them are on you. <laughs> yeah, 5% of us, right? Exactly. So the, um, but, you know, some of this stuff I think will need to be done in person. Uh, but the hybrid work environment, particularly for, for you know, white collar employees, creates the ability. It, it increases the, diet, the, the radius in which, you know, you can, you can live from center because it, it allows you to commute farther. But since you're doing it less, it actually seems to be reasonable. So my guess is that that's probably that that type of hybrid environment is probably the new normal where you're not expected to be in the office from 8 a.m. until 6 p.m. Monday through Friday. It uh, makes so much more sense from a business perspective too, right? Because like rent's expensive. Getting everybody into the office is expensive. There's an enormous amount of wasted time commuting, getting ready in the morning and commuting. And I think that people discovered that last year when they were working from home, like all of a sudden there's no commute and you just sit down at the computer and so you're getting another hour or two of work in every day. That's that's not necessarily a good thing. That's, I think people probably burned from, burned out from working so hard over the last 18 months. Um, But that's a pretty compelling argument from the business perspective too, like Maybe you buy a computer for their home. Maybe most people have already got a computer at home. Like, cut your costs down. Well, one one area that I think so on commercial office space, I kind of go back and forth. I think if you own like class A plus 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 in San Francisco or New York, I just have to think there's always going to be. I, I would wonder about what the rent inflation looks like over the next ten or twenty years, but I, I'd best I guess it's all going to be leased. I would also guess that those like the serendipities or the WeWorks. I don't know what they have everywhere here. They're all serendipity labs. Those little communal spaces. Um, my guess is those are going to be fine. I, I would think that those actually kind of get full because you're working from home for a hundred bucks a month. I can go get a desk at a serendipity lab and actually like just go somewhere to get away from you know, kids and noise and just have a space. And that's not really an unreasonable um, amount of money to spend, to have a place to go. So my guess is those are fine. The one area that I think if I had to guess of like, what's really going to take it on the chin, my guess is T and E budgets uh, for, for people who, used to travel an awful lot for work. Like I'd be really worried about the business class fare sales, you know, the, like that stuff where, you know, an American express T and E budget, their T and E spend. I, I'd be really surprised if that came back and was a strong, I, I would guess structurally um, that over the next five to 10 years, you're just going to see that number be lower because so if I don't have to be in the office more than three days a week, um, I can do a lot of sales calls initially over zoom. It's just, normal that, you know, I'm going to do a sales call over Zoom. I think some, there was an anecdote I heard too, and I forget there was a, it was a sell side lunch that, you know, and they, and they were trying to organize everybody to come into the city and it was like, they got all this blowback. They were like, just do it on Zoom, dude. Like I'm in Connecticut. Like I don't want to come in just for a lunch. Five years ago, there's no scenario that would have been done on Zoom. Now it gets done on Zoom. You know, you get the option. You can be there in person or you can do it online I think that that just takes a permanent hit out of TNE spend. Just a guess. JT, you want to have a do your uh, veggies before we we're, we're sort of quarter past the hour? Oh yeah, let's do it. Um, so yeah, let's get deep in some Eastern philosophy to to close out the hour. Um, this I, this concept of Wu Wei, which if you want to look it up, it's not it's it's spelled W U and then W E I. 
Uh, and I'm going to start out by reading a little passage from the Tao of Pooh, which is like this book about Winnie the Pooh, but it <laughs> explains Eastern philosophy because that's where I have to start. <laughs> uh, paint by numbers. But um, so here's what it says. Uh, when we learn to work with our own inner nature and with the natural laws operating around us, we reach the level of Wu Wei. Then we work with the natural order of things and operate on the principle of minimal effort. Since the natural world follows that principle, it does not make mistakes. Mistakes are made or imagined by man, the creature with the overloaded brain who separates himself with the supporting network of natural laws by interfering and trying too hard. So first of all, that's like a really nice little passage, but like just it's, it's very hard to explain Wu Wei. Uh, and because you can take so many different angles on it, but I'm going to read some of them and see if any of these resonate. Um, it's it, one definition might be the alignment with the rhythms of, of the elements, uh, effortless surrender to natural cycles of the world, ultimate energy of the universe, the drift of nature. Uh, others kind of put it more as like non-action, uh, which kind of sounds like laziness, right? If you on one level, but I think it's more that like you, you work hard when you're in the flow, but you don't, you don't fight it if you're not. Um, there's this Lao Tzu quote that it says, nature never hurries, yet everything is accomplished. Um, and there's also, I think, some elements of, of authenticity to it. Like, you, like, don't try so hard not to be yourself. Um, so like, that's sort of like, to me, uh, is represented, like I watched The Big Lebowski again recently. And like, just the idea, like the dude abides, like, I love that. It's, it's, I find it to be, it's so pithy and good. Uh, but really like, this is kind of why I often look to nature for some of the bigger truths, because there is an energy to it. There are cycles to it. And I think there's a lot that we can learn and try to like sync ourselves up with that. Um, anything that you guys, that you want to add at this point before I, I go into what I think maybe some of the implications are of, of this? The way that I have understood it is just that there is an objective reality and there is a way that things are going to unfold. And the better you are able to understand it and to align yourself with the way that things are going to unfold, the easier everything is. And I, I think that the way that the, the analogy that I like is just if you're at the beach and there's a tide and you, you, can, you can float in the water and go with the tide and you go a long way down the beach. And you can swim against that tide and stay where you are and put out a huge amount of effort. And that, you know, provided the tide's going in the direction that you want to go, it might be easier just to sit in the tide. If you swim with it, you go even faster. But the idea is that you, you figure out what, what, what has happened, what is likely to happen, and you just sort of go with it. Yeah. So I think, uh, from a like a business standpoint, I think finding the businesses that are operating in, with a win-win mentality with all of their counterparties are going with the, the tide of of recognizing this universal principle of of reciprocity, um, and that that it that is like one of the ways in which to to be in in Wu Wei. Um, you know, I think like capital cycle theory kind of makes sense to me from a Wu Wei standpoint of there are natural ebbs and flows as capitalism moves from glut to, to, to not enough. And, you know, it works its way around and through equilibrium and just understanding that that's going to happen and not drawing straight lines and projecting them off uh, is, will give you quite a bit of an advantage. Uh, even like, just like trend following to me sounds like it's sort of Wu Wei. I mean, I know it's a lot of value guys uh, are, will turn their nose up to that kind of thing. And I'm like, I personally do not engage in trend following. However, that doesn't mean that, like there's not a lot of people who think it works and they probably well, momentum, right? Momentum is a pretty well-documented quantitative phenomenon that seems to be more robust than value. And I saw, I saw Corey Hofstein was, was here you, as well. Yeah. <laughs> Corey, Corey might be able to uh, shed some more light on it, but the, I, I forget who said this, but it was a pretty great, point that they made that you know if you're in a market where tech is trending and that's going to go on for a decade and you're in momentum riding the tech and then the market breaks down and it turns into a lumber oil and gas you know those become momentum this is what's happened over the last 12 months as value has uh, slowly gradually started to become momentum you know the the the, the momentum guys haven't had to make any great switch to their strategy now they're already in the thing that started working again and they're going to be okay yeah. Uh, so, structural like tailwinds, structural tailwinds. Structural tailwinds. Yeah. So I think, like, uh, 
you know, think about like how Munger runs Daily Journal's portfolio and just how opportunistic he is. Like he is not forcing it, right? Like one, he just waits until there's something very obvious to do. And otherwise he's, he's not swimming against any tide there. Uh, he's it's in the no difficulty, rush. right? Is, is, is separating out the things that are very obvious from the things that aren't because that's the, the, you, you, everybody sees those very obvious traits once every f- five years or so. You just see something that you're like, well, it's everything that I understand and it's way too cheap and I know how this is going to work out. But it, it's there's a lot of ones that feel like that that don't quite get there. It's the non-action that's harder than, than the action. Right? <laughs> uh, so I think uh, another thing is that you have to, your investment style has to match your inner nature. And you have to be congruent with, with that and really understand yourself and where your strengths are and your personality type. And the EQ side of this whole game has to be at one. Um, and sometimes, you know, if, if we don't, if we don't match our sort of with ourselves, with the external energies, then, you know, you're just, you're just going to be forcing it. And I think, I, I think it's a good exercise for all of us really to ask you know, where in my life am I rowing against the current where if I was to think of it instead of putting up the sail and, and going with the flow, it would be so much easier. Um, so that, that wraps up a little bit of Wu Wei. I like it. And I totally agree. The, the tail, it, I agree with both tailwinds. I also agree with you're just, I think one of the biggest mistakes you can make as an investor is, is investing in such a way that does not fit your psychology and your personality it just opens up so many opportunities for mistakes. If you're doing something that makes sense to you and you can stick with it, if you know it to be right, or even more importantly, if you can keep your head on a swivel and change when you know change is coming. I mean, I, you know, having having an investment style that fits your personality, I strongly believe in. I, I always get weirded out when people on, uh, when I see people on Twitter say like, well, this is the strategy and then everybody else should just passively invest. It's like, well, you know, that's the strategy for you and you should definitely do it. And other people, passive might be exactly what they should do. Um, but, you know, the truth is there's a lot of ways to go about this business. And I'm not sure, you know, it was the psychology of money, that book where, where um, it's a good book, everybody should read it. The, the, the whole discussion about um, that two people can look at a situation and come to wildly different investment conclusions and both be right, depending on how they approach it, right? So like, I'm looking at this for 30 days, you know, and I think the, the, you know, the same store sales comp is going to be terrible. So I'm fading it. You know, and then another guy looks at it. It's like, dude, I want to own this for 10 years. I don't even care. And the truth is maybe you're both right. You know, and so the psychology thing, sorry, getting off on weird tangents. It's Morgan Housel's book too. Yeah. Just shout out to Morgan there. Yeah. Morgan did a good job. Hey, Morgan. Yeah. The timelines can make a huge difference on, you can both be right, but over different timelines. Yeah. Duration matters. And just knowing that about yourself, that like, if I buy, I had lunch with a guy who's had some really good returns and he's a young guy and his entire strategy is like, he's like, I'm a macro guy. I really don't know what most of my businesses do. And so he was like, at lunch, he was trying to figure out what I was like, what is that? Zim's breaking up. Yeah. (laughs) But but his point was, he was like, look, I just try to find these factor bets. And then I, I have these, you know, really short stop losses. And he's like, my returns are great. They're very tax efficient, but they're very good. And I'm like, dude, that that is awesome. And he's actually very self-aware. He's like, this isn't going to last forever, but right now it's just been great the last three years. I'm like, good for you. And uh, he's very self-aware. And I was like, that that would not work for me. Uh, but I think you know, for him, it's obviously working. And I'm just like, dude, more power to you. That's awesome. And go about it any way that makes sense. The, the challenge for me has been something like value, which you know, if you talk to enough value guys, they'll say value's evergreen you know, the idea of buying something for less than it's worth, how can that not work? But clearly there are different definitions of value. I mean, all of the the uh, software as a service tech guys would also say, look, we're doing DCF, doing fundamental analysis, looking at a oh, long way into the future, which is what you should do. When I discount back those very high growth rates, I come up with a very big number. We're trading at a much smaller number than that very big number. And so not a lot has to go right for me to get really great returns. And then Maybe Jake and I would look at that and say, well, those growth rates have base rates that are not supportable for that period of time. And the rejoinder would be, well, we're in a brand new world. It's a networked world. And that, those are all very good arguments. And I honestly don't know what the correct answer to that is. I don't know which side of the fence I want to be on. I've kind of made my bet and I'm confident in my bet. But equally, you know, I can sit on my own shoulder and see there are plenty of other arguments the other way. 
No, that's I agree. Just that's a rational. great assessment of yeah, where we find rational. ourselves. Yeah, that's right. But it works for you. The key is it works for you. You understand it. You know what you're doing. You know the bet you're making. You're intelligent. You're a big boy. Like if it works and my belief is that it will, we'll see if I'm right about that. But if it works, it's like, great. And if it doesn't, it's like, well, that was how you went about it. And you made it, you made your choice and you did it intelligently and rationally and it might work and it might not. But The only problem is I felt the same way in 2010 and I also felt the same way in 2015 and I was wrong on both of those occasions. I think Jake and I have d- diagnosed the 2015 problem, but uh, we'll see. If it comes around again, we'll let everybody know. Is, is Three questions and dudes. Is the, is the diagnosis even a blind squirrel? Does it start even a blind squirrel finds a nut? Is that the... Uh... I think that... Well, no, that I think was the, 2008. The spread, <laughs> the spread is the big... Yeah. Well, that, that was... Yeah. I think the spread is the big issue for... for is a big driver of returns to value. When... when when the very best companies are trading as if they're the junkie companies, then you yeah. are paid to be buying those very best companies. And when right. the spread gets very wide, then it, you know, it's still a handicapper type market. You want to be on the things that I think the reason that the, a lot of the companies worked really well from 2015 to date is they just got the good stuff got way too cheap and you were basically taking a free hit on whatever happened. And then that has happened. And you can look at now that the multiples are. A lot are very different to where they were in 2015. Microsoft is a great example. Went from like an 11% free cash flow yield to like wherever it is now, 3%. It was hated. It was amazing. Yeah. The narrative has yeah. changed on that one. It's almost like you're suggesting that price matters. And I'm not sure I agree with that. Toby. There's been no evidence that that's the case. I'm going to need to see some data. I'm going to need to see some data that price matters for me, Toby, before I agree. JT, what are you doing in St. Louis? You tell everybody what you're in St. Louis for. That's none of their business. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm here for uh, an investor conference that uh, should be pretty good. It's a lot of smart people showing up, uh, so well, it, it should be fun. I'm excited to. It starts today, so I, I don't even know exactly what we're doing, but it's going to be good. I, I, I got a question here. When's the next ca- crash? I, I've predicted about 15 of the last two, so I'm prepared to have a swing at it. I don't, I don't know honestly, but it, I do think it's funny that you know for all of the the ARK, ARKK style companies, like I just put that, it doesn't necessarily have to be in the portfolio, but a lot of them seem to top out in February uh, this year. And it's been a much better run for the kind of junk that the little turd balls that I prefer since then. And so I think sometimes like the, the crashes seem to be about, I take about eight to 12 months from the peak, you just sort of bump sideways and then you really see some fireworks. So if I had to like, have a guess i'd say q2 next year with a straight face bold you think so that's a big statement yeah i was gonna say one the only thing i know for sure to answer that question is it's definitely coming that's the one answer i have we have reached a new permanent high plateau there you go inducing it calling down the thunder (laughs) i have no idea by the way 16 percent compound returns for the next 10 years but wait for it it's not. It's not at all predictable. I'm just. I'm just speculating for fun, not for profit. Too hard. Yeah, I think so. So, so hard. Um, could a difference in the price increases of goods we import versus goods we mostly produce shed some light on whether inflation is more driven by supply or demand? Wouldn't you have some equilibrium? The stuff that, like the locals, can charge more for it now, can't they? So I'm gonna have to read that. I'm not. I don't have the questions open. So what was the? What was Could the, a difference the in the price increases of goods we import, so imports versus things that we make at home, shed some light on whether inflation is driven by that supply and demand? Well, there, there's so much that we don't make at home. I mean, that's the that's the problem. I mean, a lot of it we have to import, right? So I think or a component yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, or a component of it to complete the finished good. So I think I do think you know that the domestically produced. Goods have have a, have a reasonable shot of of, uh, of have, having a different path than imports. But the problem we have in the United States right now is that we just don't have labor. I mean, that's that's the and, and one of the things I'm kind of worried. My my where my head is now is I'm I'm kind of worried about rolling labor issues. Meaning, um, so you could more unionization really, talk right now. Yeah, no, I, I don't mean I don't mean I mean unionization may come back in force, but but right now labor has such power, you know, so much negotiating power that it, I'm 
I'd be shocked if, if unions became more of a force. I mean, that's usually when you don't have the power at labor where unions become the issue. But right now, you know, you can, if you're an able-bodied, you know, U.S. citizen, you want to go get a job, like there's plenty of jobs for you and everybody's talking. So I'm worried that like everybody right now is, you know, doing X and that they, they go, and I'm talking about just normal trades. I'm not talking about really skilled labor, that it just shifts from one job to the next job. And that just creates these, you know, as, as wages start to rise in one area, you get these shifts and then you sort of have it down and, and um, there, there it equilibrates over time though, surely it sort of finds its, finds yeah. its level. You'd like to think, I mean, we certainly have enough bodies, right? So you'd like to think that um, we have enough population. So you'd like to think that these, that people will go back to work and all this will sort of normalize, which kind of feeds into that like deflation of, of, of goods and services prices in 2022, assuming they all go back to work and you, you don't have to pay the higher wages because we do have, have plenty of labor. But, um, you know, there's no guarantee that will happen, but you know, very well might. Folks, we've come up on time. I didn't I answer think, the question. I'm very I think sorry. you killed it. I think you've done a great job. Hey, thanks so much for joining us this week, Mike. Loved, uh, oh. love having you here. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it. I appreciate it, guys. Happy I always learn something, which I like. Oh, hopefully it's useful. But yeah, dude, I enjoyed it. I love this guy. So any, anytime you guys need, just let me know. Thanks, folks.